0: Hey, it's Tom Panneries. Quick content warning at the beginning of the episode here. I'll be talking about American society and culture, and during the course of my discussion, you'll hear uh, my personal political views, which are quite liberal. If you find yourself offended by such views and don't want to listen to it at all, that is no problem. I just wanted to give you a heads up before we began. Pop Culture Affidavit, episode 137 and walked off to look.
1: Let us be lovers We'll marry our fortunes together I've got some real Stayed here in my bag. So we bought a pack of cigarettes and Mrs. wagner pies and walked off to look for America. Kathy, I said as we bought
0: Hello and welcome to episode 137 of Pop Culture Affidavit, the podcast that takes a look at everything random in the world of popular culture, which is brought to you by the Two True Freaks Internet Radio Network. I'm your host, Tom Panneries, and welcome to the third of three episodes that I've been doing where I take a look at America, its history, its society, and its culture. In part one, I looked at American history through the lens of comic books. In part two, I did an episode about a day in the life of America in various forms, mainly photography collections and documentaries. For part three, I'm going to be looking at journeys across America, especially on foot through the lens of the seminal travel logs: A Walk Across America and The Walk West, A Walk Across America 2 by Peter Jenkins and Barbara Jenkins. These books, really the first A Walk Across America, were what got me started on this whole three-episode mini-series of sorts. You see, back in the spring, I brought Bill Bryson's A Walk in the Woods to my other podcast, Required Reading with Tom and Stella. In response, Stella brought Cheryl Strayed's Wild, and from there we decided to devote two more episodes to individual travelogues, along with our episode 70 to exploring the idea of writing about one's personal journey. That episode, by the way, came out a few weeks ago, so if you would like to hear the two of us sit down and talk about journeys and hiking while we actually do some hiking, you can go to requiredreadingwithtomandstella.com or the Two True Freaks website and download and stream and listen to the episode. A walk across America didn't make the cut for required reading. In researching my second pick, which would become Off the Road, Jack Hitt's book about hiking the Santiago de Compostela, which was episode 68 of the show, I read A Walk Across America, but didn't want to discuss it for the show. Part of that is because I didn't, at the time, think I could get enough of a discussion out of it. The other part is that as I came to the end of the book and looked up what else the author had written, I discovered that the journey across America actually took up two books, So I decided to bring it up on episode 70 of the show in our conversation and then bring it over here to cover. From there, though, I started thinking about how I wanted to do an episode or blog post on A Day in the Life of America. Then I found a cartoon history of America in my public library, and well, the result is the three episodes that I hope you've been enjoying. So we'll start walking across America as I look at those two books, as well as Jedediah Jenkins's. To shake the sleeping self, along with contemporary individuals' recounts of their walks across parts of or all of our vast nation. And as I bring some closure to this series, I hope to answer some of the questions I have about who we are, what our mission seems to be, or at least see if I can gain some perspective for myself. I hope you're ready for that on the other side of this break.
1: Playing games with the faces She said the man in the gabardine suit was a spy I said be careful, his bow tie is really a. Adolescents this generation have no respect and are a far cry from my sweet Jane Eyre and her friend Helen Burns. Why just this afternoon I was Stella Ross and and you know what? Men too. Well
0: where uh, uh, are the Stella
1: serious men like the tragic Mr. Rochester and teachers, pa they're all like the villainous Mr. Brocklehurst. Hey Stella Uh, yes, Thomas.
0: As much as I enjoy um, indulging your insanity, we have a promo to record.
1: Oh dear, and what might that be?
0: That is you and I telling everyone that we have a podcast out there. It's called Required Reading with Tom and Stella. Once a month, we will take a look at a single work of literature, discuss it, analyze it, and determine if it's worth its place in the canon.
1: Oh, dear, that sounds delightful.
0: Oh, I'm sure it will be. And you can find us on the Two True Freaks Network, which is at twotruefreaks.com.
1: Oh, yes. Required reading with Tom and... Why is it Tom and Stella? Why can't it be Stella and Tom?
0: It rolls off the tongue better? Okay. Well, that was easy. So, required reading with Tom and Stella at twotruefreaks.com. Thanks for contributing to the promo there. You did a great job.
1: Oh, you are so welcome. Give me a reason, sir, as to why they never grown. They just blown around from town to town till they're back out on these fields. Yeah, well, they fall from my hand back into the dirt of this hard land. Come on, I'm me and my sister.
0: So like I said in the intro, I had been reading books about hiking and walking as part of a mini-project that Stella and I were doing for our show. And in my search for another book about a walk, I came across the description of a walk across America on Amazon, as well as its reputation for being a seminal work in travel writing. It was a huge bestseller when it originally released in January of 1979 and gave its author minor celebrity. And yet for all the travel writing I've read over the years, I had never heard of it. But that's not saying much considering that I was having golden books read to me in January of 1979. And even now, there's not much I know about what was being published in the late 70s and early 80s beyond authors like Stephen King or Danielle Steele and Rice V.C. Andrews Jean-All, you know, the Clan of the Cave Bear, or Jean-All? Jean-All? jean um, Uh, Anyway, or any other authors that I saw on my parents' bookshelves. But the books were bestsellers. Jenkins got a considerable amount of attention via National Geographic. That's not by accident. In A Walk Across America, Peter details how he walked from New York to Washington, D.C. and pitched the tale of his trip to the National Geographic Society. Nat Geo did not subsidize the trip in any way except to supply him with photography equipment, and he agreed to write, write an article about his journey in 1977, that would be expanded into the book. Like I said, when it was published in 1979, A Walk Across America was a huge hit, spending three months on the New York Times bestseller list, and it went into six printings within its first year of publication. He repeated this with an article about the back half of the trip in 1979 which would then be expanded into The Walk West, A Walk Across America 2, in 1981, and that was on the Times bestseller list for at least three months as well. From there, the first book has been reprinted and remains in print, and Jenkins still seems to be known within the niche of travel writing and writing about walking or hiking journeys. Plus, as I said earlier, he is credited for starting this subgenre and being among one of the first travel authors of our current era. In my uh, travels to find the book, I got my public library's copy of A Walk Across America, and it was while I was reading it that I found out the second book existed. My library did not have a copy of The Walk West. The book seems to be out of print. So what I did was start poking around the internet, and I found both books in an eBay auction. They were both first edition hardcovers and were actually signed by the author's. Peter Jenkins signed his name and go for it in A Walk Across America, and The Walk West was signed by both authors. Peter simply wrote America above his name. Barbara wrote Walk by Faith and signed hers. So that's pretty cool. So what are these books about, you know, aside from the obvious? Well, Peter Jenkins was 22 in 1973. He was living in the college town of Alfred, New York. He had just seen his first marriage fall apart, having gotten married when he was attending Alfred University. Incidentally, 1973 was also a tumultuous year for the United States. America was finally getting out of Vietnam, although it was a shameful withdrawal. Watergate was heating up and President Nixon would resign the following year. OPEC would decrease production because of U.S. support for Israel and that would result in an energy crisis. And socially, many of the dreams of the 60s counterculture were dying out, or at least what we know of it was retreating, and in many cases retreating into darker and certainly more insular places. Jenkins, in the book, mentions his admiration for the hippie ideals, so it's no wonder that at 22 he wanted more freedom. Consequently, those national and society events led to a dissolution with America and American society. I can see that especially considering some of the awfulness that has happened in our country since 2016. And his solution or his idea was to walk across the country. He would walk down to the Gulf of Mexico and then travel northwest, ending in Oregon. The trip would take nearly six years, ending in January of 1979. Of course, we don't know that going into a walk across America, neither did Jenkins. Really, by his best estimate, he figures the walk is going to take a couple of years at most. He trains for it as well, walking and running around Alfred, and on the day he departs in October of 1973, he's accompanied by several friends for the first mile or two and then sets off along with only one companion, his dog Cooper, who is an Alaskan Malamute. Synopsizing the books is kind of a tedious endeavor, to be honest. I will say that this review will have spoilers in case anyone is interested in reading them. Granted, it's not a spoiler to say that he makes it all the way to Oregon. And it's not a spoiler to say that along the way, Peter meets his second wife, Barbara Jo Pinnell, who he meets in New Orleans and who decides to leave her seminary studies to finish The Walk with him, which is why she is the co-author of The Walk West. So I guess what I will do is just hit some of the highlights and talk a little bit about some of the book's characters and themes. The books are structured along the path that Jenkins took, starting in upstate New York and eventually ending up in Oregon. Each book has a map provided that shows the entire route, as well as maps every few chapters to tell us what section of the trip is being covered. These maps also have illustrations that show some of the characters in his tale, or maybe things that happened to him over the course of his journey, and they're beautifully rendered by our artist Paul Breeden. Now. What's interesting to me is the way that when we started his journey, Peter didn't do a complete back-to-nature course. He spent time in the Appalachian Trail, but also spent much of the trip walking on the sides of the roads and highways. Back-to-nature would have been appropriate for the early 70s. This is a time that saw quite a bit of social and environmental consciousness, including the first Earth Day. And the idea of going completely back-to-nature would have been appealing. But he seemed more interested in the people he was going to find along the way. And what are the highlights of those people? Well, in the first book, you have his trip through parts of Appalachia, especially through Virginia, North Carolina. He does stop in Charlottesville for a moment and is turned off by its snobbish college town aspects, which Charlottesville can very well be. Trust me, I've been living here for 18 years now. So then he moves deeper into the mountains. At one point, he stays with an old man named Homer Davenport, who basically lives off the mountain is more or less a self-sustaining mountain man. Later on, he and Barbara will spend time in West Texas with another Homer, Homer Martin, and his wife, Ruby. They live at a small farmhouse out on the prairie in the flatlands of that part of the state. And in one of the longer sections of the Walk West, the two of them spend a good six months living on Colorado on the ranch of Perk and Emma Jean Vickers. At first, these are the people that Jenkins deliberately seek out, salt-of-the-earth types who are a little non-conformist compared to, say, your average 70s suburbanite. They're not backwards as far as modernity is concerned or anything like that. They simply have just lived off the land for generations. Sections like this, when we see these people, seem to dissolve stereotypes that we may have about those people, especially when Peter's in Appalachia and Visions of deliverance are dancing in our heads. But Homer Davenport, who he meets the mountain man, is no inbred hick, and he's not, and neither are too many of the other people he and Barbara come across. Most of them are pretty welcoming. Oh, sure, there are a few, but that's to be expected. And honestly, we get a very good sense of who the people in America are through these two books. Early on in the first book, A Walk Across America, I think that one of the best examples of this is in Smoky Hollow, North Carolina. This is near the town of Texana. This is where Peter stays for a few months with a black family named the Lloyds. It's one of the first long stays of the trip and is done out of necessity because he has run out of money and needs to earn some in order to afford to keep going. So he gets a job at a sawmill and works there while living with his family. To his credit, the work is extremely hard, and he's not doing this to flex about how open-minded he is or playing that rich guy slumming it to get experience type of game. The family takes him in after he's more or less run out of town by the white people in the area. The kids in the family are playing basketball. They see him and Cooper kind of moping through the town. They offer him a meal and then shelter. He's hesitant at first, which he shyly admits is an ingrained reaction, and he also feels guilty about that but he gets over any reservations pretty quickly. The several months spent living there are probably the centerpiece of the first book, and they tend to be some of the most problematic in places, at least according to our current standards. Peter is very aware of his privilege in life and the privilege that afforded him the opportunity to walk across the country there were plenty of men his age who had to work in order to survive to provide. But as he stays with this family, he goes a little colorblind and we see him appropriating the way they speak, as well as words and phrases that don't necessarily fly. I get that after several months, you tend to take on a little bit of the ways of the people you're around, but he's a little too comfortable in that sense. But according to Mary Lloyd, who was the family matriarch, and she wrote about Peter's visit in a local Texana, North Carolina history publication, Peter, quote, got to be part of the family. And to his credit, he does write about how not everyone in the community was welcome to the white guy staying in their midst. If you can get some of his cringier moments, as well as his efforts to phonetically write out dialogue from his, quote, brothers and sisters, if you can get that out of the way, you can see someone who does genuinely regard the Lloyds and the greater Texana community as simply good people. In fact, there's an irony in the way that he then encounters Alabama Governor George Wallace. He visits Wallace's office. He has a quick meeting with him and shakes his hand and walks out, quote, Prouder to be an American than when I had come in. Now, to his credit, Wallace is cordial, but the man was also a politician and he was a politician for a very long time. He knew how to gladhand. But George Wallace was an enormous racist. I mean, he's the one who gave the infamous segregation segregation today, tomorrow, forever speech. So I can't walk away from Peter Jenkins' visit with that governor without feeling disappointed in him, especially after spending several months with the black family. You know, even if he was being polite with Wallace, you know, which you might do if you're in the presence of somebody like that, he could have given us some critical commentary, but he kind of gives tacit approval because, I don't know, he was nice. And yes, I gather that, you know, Jenkins is kind of apolitical throughout this entire thing, but I don't know. I mean, I might be projecting my own biases here, but I can't get behind feeling proud to be an American after meeting George fucking Wallace. I just can't. But a motif of a walk across America is the irony in finding goodness where you do not expect it, and being turned off by those people or places you thought would be welcoming. Such is his brief sojourn on the farm in Tennessee, The farm is basically a self-sustaining hippie commune that was founded in 1971 by Stephen Gaskin and about 300 people who emigrated there from Haight-Ashbury. Peter stays there for a little while, but plans to leave pretty early into his stay because the people there were putting pressure on him to stay. It wasn't cult-like, but you kind of get that vibe when reading about it. Plus, he notes that Cooper never really liked the place, and he trusts his dog's instincts. Unfortunately, Cooper is hit by a water tanker truck and killed, and Peter winds up setting off alone soon after. I have to say I was bummed, because I liked the relationship that Peter had with Cooper and the way the dog was his own character in the story. But I'm not surprised at the way people on the farm were pressuring them to stay there. It seems that very often, groups with that much devotion to a particular belief system, no matter what it is, will try to draw you in and not just accept that you're there for a sojourn. But then Peter attends a tent revival in Mobile, Alabama, run by James Robinson, who is a famous televangelist, and he converts to evangelical Christianity. He'll eventually make his way to New Orleans, where he meets and marries Barbara. And I have to say, I almost did not pick up the second book because of this. Yes, that reveals a bit about my own prejudices and hangups about religion, American Christianity in particular. My general view of religion tends to be one of overall indifference, really, at least when it comes to practicing myself. I also try to be respectful or at least polite regarding others and their personal beliefs. I do have friends who are quite religious, and I really try not to, you know, I, I try to be respectful to what they believe. But the connection between evangelical Christianity in the United States and politics that advocate for the oppression of women, the LGBTQ plus community, and those of other religions enrages me. I see people like Robinson, Jerry Falwell, and Pat Robertson as con men more than men of God. So I close the first book thinking that Peter got duped and wonder how he could be that naive. What brought me back to this story and had me buying The Walk West aside from finding it for a good price on eBay, was that the journey was unfinished. At the end of the first book, after he meets Barbara and they get together, she has this like divine intervention at a church service where something inside her, inside her tells her that she has to go with this man. It's not a light decision. She's a seminary student in New Orleans, and in order to join him, she has to quit her studies and completely uproot her life. It's something that might draw strong objections from her family. And that's another thread running through the two books, their families. Peter's parents seem to reluctantly let him go do this, although really, what choice do they have? And there is a nice moment in the first book where his parents visit him at the Lloyd's house in Texana during the holidays. But what about Barbara and her family? It's something that she works on throughout the Walk West, repeatedly coming back to these moments where she decided to go with him. Barbara's parents are concerned about the two of them, but also drive out to meet them in their camper or to give them respite from the hot Texas sun. Again, much like Peter's parents, there is not much they can do when it comes to the will of their adult daughter, so they take, well, that leap of faith. The most important leap of faith, though, is Barbara's, and in The Walk West, she is not only a co-writer, but also a second voice. As we see Peter and his thoughts as they encounter people, across the western half of the country, there are a number of chapters where Barbara lends her own narration, and it actually makes the second book better than the first, at least in my mind, because she can often be a contrasting voice. Barbara Jenkins also has a better style of writing than her husband. She's more capable of showing us scenes than Peter's often simply telling us. He's a good writer. I enjoyed his book. But there's an ease to her voice when she's when it's her voice that's more engaging at times, and she also has a strong-willed, independent personality that means she refuses to take a backseat to her husband. In Louisiana, she joins him on shrimping and fishing expeditions. On the highway, while she may be walking behind him because they agreed to keep their own pace, she keeps up and is not a drag or anything like that. In fact, she puts up with a lot of shit because there are just moments where he's really rude, even going so far as to yell and get continually frustrated with her as if she's keeping him from making progress, even though I don't see it that way. And when you're reading it, you do wonder what the hell his problem is. Even though you know that quite a bit of what is going on is frustration at the journey, especially when the long stretches of road involve them getting completely baked in the sun and fighting both starvation and dehydration. Still... This is where the two of them wind up reflecting the spirit of many of the people they come across, which is resilience. They befriend the couple of Homer and Ruby Martin and survive a tornado. They stay through the winter at the Vickers farm, which was up on the mountains of Colorado and constantly snowed in. In six years of walking, the reader sees the way people as individuals or community work and live and in some cases survive. You can tell this motivated the two of them as they make their way across sparse parts of Colorado, Utah, and Idaho before arriving in Oregon, where they arrange to have as many of their friends as possible, the ones from home and the ones they made along the way, join them to help walk the last couple of miles to the Pacific Ocean. At this point, both of them are exhausted. Barbara was hit by a car. Thankfully, she was okay, and she's also pregnant and she's dealing with constant morning sickness. So they're, they're, at, they're at their wit's end. Thankfully, it's the end of the journey. Through Oregon, by the way, a guy named Milo Frank drives alongside them, offering moral support, like kind of you know Barbara throwing up as they go and just kind of being the person to kind of get them through it. And the last mile in Oregon with all their friends ends up being as much of a party as that first mile in New York was. People walk alongside them, and then they finally finish by wading into the Pacific. The Walk West ends with an epilogue about 18 months later. Peter is home, and a man named Chad Hammond from Indiana knocks on his door. He's walking across the country with his own dog. Peter gives him some food and then hooks the guy up with a job and offers him a place to stay. And then he finishes up saying, I continued writing my book, and Chad worked until he saved enough money to keep walking. He headed out for Texas in the winding road. The circle is never broken. In a way, reading that second book made me like the first book again. It's not like I didn't like A Walk Across America, but the incomplete nature of it left me unsatisfied. And yes, I was annoyed at the religious aspect of its ending. There's plenty of religion in The Walk West, but As Peter and Barbara go on their journey, their respective ways of following Christianity seem to be very personal and provide motivation. They turn to various verses in the Bible at times, and it's often Barbara, who was after all a seminary student, who shares a verse or two with her husband as a way to ground or focus them. I see how this works, because I can see it from the point of view of other religions as well as those who are not religious. Knowing that they are doing something universal through their own lens— and that I could see myself reaching for some sort of motivation when things got hard. That makes me feel a connection to them that I otherwise wouldn't. Beyond that, I found the stories told throughout these books to be fascinating because of the characters involved. Yes, I did think critically with regard to the book in a more contemporary context, but I'll come back to that because that what really gets me is the way I found myself wanting to be in the room with Peter and Barbara as they met these people, spent time with them, worked with them, and learned about them. These books are obviously a time capsule, showing us America in the 1970s and a part of America that we do not see when we look through the lens of nostalgia. I wondered a little about the people that Jenkins encountered, a number I figure have passed on in the 40 or 50 years since they did the walk, but both Peter and Barbara Jenkins are still alive. So as I was wrapping up my read of the two books, I began to wonder what happened to them. Thankfully, We live in the age of Google, and their son Jed had written a book of his own, and I'm going to talk about this book and their lives since completing the walk after this. affairs, rage, revenge, testosterone poisoning, gunshots, sculpture, feminine hygiene products, naked car crashes,
1: you know what we haven't had in a long time?
0: And liver. Terry Moore's Strangers in Paradise, the audio adaptation, coming to your ear holes in late 2020 on the Two True Freaks podcast network
1: liver is my life. Sometimes I drive a long way back When photographs and souvenirs knock me off my track Search all
0: around for a place to start. So, like I said, after I finished The Walk West, I became very curious about what happened to the Jenkins. Did they write any other books or take any other trips? Searching for Peter Jenkins on Goodreads and Amazon shows books about China as well as Alaska and the Gulf Coast. The couple also wrote The Road Unseen in 1985. Which, according to its brief summary on Amazon, is a follow-up to their two books. You know, when recounting further travels and explaining how the presence of God has enabled them to face their personal trials. And then I came across a review of a walk across America on a blog called Dog Snot on My Windshield. Fun name. It's a fun little travel blog. I've read a little bit of it. Anyway, they and the people in the comments talked a little bit about what they knew about the Jenkins post-walk and then linked to an interview with Barbara on the Challenge Your Thinking with Dr. Linda Tucker podcast. I will link to both of those in the show notes for you all. In the interview, she talks about her life after Walk Across America, uh, most notably how her marriage fell apart in the mid-1980s and she wound up raising her kids alone. It's a really good interview. Uh, Barbara Jenkins is just fascinating to listen to, and I really, really enjoyed enjoyed it. Now, one of the kids she mentions is Jedediah Jenkins. She actually talks about him at length. He's a writer himself, and his own travel memoir, which is called To Shake the Sleeping Self, was published in 2018. This details his bike trip from Oregon to Patagonia the motivation for which came when someone in his law office had returned from a similar excursion. So he was on the verge of turning 30, and he left his job behind, grabbed a friend, and started writing. Jed initially documented the trip through Instagram posts and then made a short film called The Thousand-Year Trip, Oregon to Patagonia. Incidentally, uh, Jed would go on to direct the Coney 2012 documentary. That That went viral all over the world. I will link to his page and his Insta in the show notes as well. To shake the sleeping self is decidedly millennial in places, or at least the cool millennial kids type of thing, using Insta and going to exotic places. But I can't entirely fault him. After all, his father had the support of National Geographic for his trip and chronicled it in the magazine. Plus, the story of Jed's trip is intriguing. He and his friend are a younger version of Bill Bryson and Stephen Katz heading off on a huge, arduous expedition with no experience. And when they get to Mexico and Central America, he gives us a good look at the culture we associate with those places, as well as the culture we don't often see. Of course, I have to admit that I was not reading the book for Jed's trip as much as I was reading it for his family's story, which is where he gets into when he has to break up the monotony of the trip. His parents were both notable people in a sense, and both wrote about God and their faith. The result was that he was raised in a pretty conservative household. However, the house fell apart after a time. Peter cheated on Barbara, and the language she uses in the articles that are about their divorce filing is pretty vicious. And Peter even remarried again, only to have that marriage end in divorce. At the time of publication, he was apparently very happy with his potential wife number four. Barbara also married again but would divorce for a second time and had her own struggles as a single mother, including accepting her son's sexuality. She, by 2011, which is when Jed started his trip, had gone down the path of many American conservative Christians and was an avid Fox News watcher. We see this in her assumptions that his ride through Mexico would get him killed by a drug cartel, and the way she had this sort of, and I love you, but attitude toward his sexuality. At the same time, you don't necessarily hate her, and Jed doesn't hate her either. The portrayal is very honest. She is struggling, and he is as well. It makes their relationship complicated. Plus, I already, quote, knew her from the two books that she wrote with her husband, and remembering who that person was and what had ex- she had experienced, I did have hope that she could end up being more open-minded. In fact, at the end of the book, she joins Jed and several of his friends for the last climb up Torres del Pane in Argentina, in a manner similar to the last mile walked in the walk west. And during the last couple of years, Jed and Barbara took a road trip along places where she had walked with Peter, something documented on his Instagram. Incidentally, Peter had been retracing his own steps by car back in 2015 or 2016 But aside from random pictures on his Facebook and a quick teaser on YouTube, nothing ever really seems to have come out of that. All in all, to shake the sleeping self is a next-generation follow-up to A Walk Across America. Of course, it literally is. But more than that, it is very much in the vein of one of those next-generation, next-wave shows where the new cast is center stage and the old cast takes a supporting role. The struggles that Jed has with his mother and family drive that home, especially since he struggles with who he is and how he fits into the very conservative family he left behind. I thought it was very honest and it was a look at something that you hear about from a lot of people. And it was, um, that's where I found the value in the book. Sometimes more than his, we're going to go into this town in Mexico and drink beers all night adventures and things like that. Not that those weren't fun at times, but his contemplations were authentic. There were things about him and Barbara and Peter that you still liked, especially about Barbara and Peter, but you were very disappointed in as well. And being that his parents were so connected through this and then that he, he weaved them into this, like that made reading about his own journey really, really worth it. And you know that might not be the the opinion of somebody who had not read A Walk Across America uh, prior to it, but I found that um, that's what that's why I found it very very fun to read. And granted, there's no fast hard and fast rule for travel memoirs anyway, right? You know, all we really want to do is hope we can relate to the narrator on some level, and if we can't, or at least interested in his journey or her journey. There are places where I couldn't help but look at Jed's book with a cynical eye especially since he displays a fair amount of white male privilege. And honestly, white men or white people, that they seem to be the ones who predominantly do these long walks across America. I looked up people who walked or hiked across the country. There have been many. It's an interesting thing to research, um, especially since people do it for a number of reasons. I really didn't read everything that I came across I've read a couple of other books that are in a similar nature before, and a lot of them do it for the mere feat of doing so. Uh, some use it as some sort of quasi-religious pilgrimage. Others raise money for charity. Overall, when I come across them on the internet, things are very positive but that's the angle of the internet. That's the angle of the social media. There, there's a polish on a blog, on an Instagram post, on a news story that shows the nicer side of the things. and doesn't show the struggle as much. Maybe the blog is kind of an exception to the rule. Sometimes people do write about them, but they're sometimes they're not in depth. They're very telly. So you don't really get the inside of it until somebody writes a book like Peter and Barbara did what's enjoyable about a walk across America and the walk West and to shake the sleeping self is that honesty. It's how human each of the writers are and how human they are about who and what they encountered. And I like that more than I like a blog post accompanied by smiling faces. I really felt like I was getting a window into something. Um, and not just their personal lives. Like they were really showing us who the people they met were. Jed's book does not have any pictures associated with it. You could go onto his Instagram and look at pictures of things. So if you feel like doing that, um, if you get a copy of A Walk Across America and A Walk Across America 2 in hardcover or or the early paperbacks, there are black and white and pic- and, and uh, color pictures inserted between a number of, of the chapters so you can see who some of these people were. And that's pretty cool. I always like seeing that. So I really did get a sense of what a good portion of the country was like back then. The other thing though is like, as I was reading this and I was finishing this up and I was writing this episode um, and trying to come up with a conclusion, one thing I kept thinking of was like, I'd love to see what somebody who is not white would be like doing this like how how would that be different would they have the same positive things to say that so many people who write these memoirs or blog their experience do you know there's a lot of possibilities of it when you change the perspective of the writer and i would be fascinated to see what that was like So um, we're kind of getting to a conclusion here. And the conclusion is we always seem to be looking for something. I think that's part of the human condition. But so much of that search is born out of dissatisfaction. When it comes to America, even the world, is that a result of economics? Or are we lost in some moral or spiritual way? And if we do not have the privilege or position that allows for not only any such travel, but positive interactions along the way, do we end up having to live them vicariously through people like Peter and Barbara and Jed Jenkins? After three months and three episodes, what, if any, conclusions have I reached? (sighs) This has been a hard answer this entire time because it's not simple. But then again, it never is. I found that growing up in a particular place leads to you having a complex relationship with it. For instance, I often say that going back to Long Island is like having a dinner with an old girlfriend. You have a pleasant enough time and you get along, but at some point you remember why you broke up in the first place. And this country and its people, they're very much the same way. Now, granted, I'm still here. I haven't moved away or anything, but I cannot consider myself to be someone who's completely in love with this country either. There is some hope to be found in the people of our country, especially those who recognize that our wide diversity is one of our greatest strengths and do not actively work to suppress others. These days, that seems like kind of a tall order, though, at least from what I see in the news and on the Internet. And what can I say that hasn't already been said? It's hard to be an American at the moment when so many of your fellow citizens actively support someone who has a disdain for the democratic values upon which we were founded. And while I know I should put politics aside, it's not easy when so many have made that such a core part of their identity. So, in some way, I'm still looking. I probably always will be. It's not the most satisfactory of conclusions. But I feel like I have some sort of appreciation for who we are at the moment, positive or negative, who we have been, who we possibly could be. A part of me holds out hope that things will be okay. Another part of me is very sad to see all of this crumble before my eyes. And that's an honest answer. That's really all I can give right now. I'll be back in a moment with some listener feedback.
1: Sometimes I drive
0: a long way back So I have a little feedback this time. Uh, Professor Allen messaged me and and uh, commented here and there about the A Day in the Life of America book saying he was pretty sure he had a copy or saw a copy, um, and recently um, his his father passed, and um, he was cleaning out the house and found the copy of the book as well as A Day in the Life in Thailand, I believe, and sent me pictures. So yeah, and I, I imagine, I think a few people, other people mentioned that they, they remember that the book, The Day in the Life of America. So I just wanted to give a, give a shout out and, and all my best to Professor Allen at this time. I have an email from Michael Bailey with the subject of Diane Lane and other things. So this is about a few episodes. And he says, Tom, I've been binging some pop culture affidavit recently, as well as listening to your 9-11 miniseries and Fallen Walls Open Curtains. It has been a fun ride. I finished your Diane Lane episodes and had a few thoughts based on your commentary. First, there is nothing weirder than seeing Robert Townsend in Streets of Fire. This was before his b- big break, and it's odd—just odd—that he was in the film. Yeah, the that whole thing, and then playing "I Can Dream About You," which is like does not seem to fit the band that they're in. Yeah, that's a that's an odd choice. Second, Mike says Meatloaf ended up doing his version of Nowhere Fast, and it's not as good as Fire Incorporated's version. It has none of the STEINMAN, all caps, of that Streets of Fire edition. To be fair, it's not as bad as rock and roll mercenaries, but it's hardly meets best effort. The video is weird, and he provided a link to the video, and it is strange. <laughs> Third, Steinman was always reusing material, and I happened upon a demo he did for his contributions to Dance of the Vampires, the stage musical version of the Fearless Vampires Killer's... And if all of that sounds insane, realizing that the big number was a lyrically reworked version of Total Eclipse of the Heart. Steinman also stripped away the lyrics from Tonight Is What It Means to Be Young and made it the finale number. I cannot adequately describe it, so I'm enclosing the track. It's a lot. I'm going to play a little bit of that here, just in case you want to hear it.
1: Now our life in the darkness is over, we'll be dancing in the the sun. We are sure of our goals and know go what path we must take. We don't live, we don't die, but we are
0: really interesting. The the uh, Let the Rebels Begin part, which is very musical theater and very finale when I listen to it, seems to be uh, preserved. But the, the weird accent-y stuff, yeah, really, really interesting. <laughs> anyway, back into Mike's email here. Finally, while I did not own Madonna's sex book, I have seen it. I mentioned the sex book in one of my more recent episodes. During one of the performances, The Pink Panther Strikes Again, which is the play he did in 11th grade, one of my castmates got the book for her birthday and it was circulated backstage as the performance went on. That I can see. That's like, that is like one of those things where somebody got a hold of it and everybody got, you know, and then, and, and, and I don't know, maybe some a teacher confiscated it or something. Not that it happened to Mike, but like, I can picture this. (laughs) That castmate, he says, was a really good friend of one of my older sisters. So that gift was on brand for that group. She's now a senior anchor at a major Washington news outlet. And I talk about Superman on the internet. So one of us made more of their lives than the other one did. (laughs) Oh, Mike, come on. Anyway, he says, I hope all is well. The 9-11 miniseries is really good. I continue to marvel at your ability to produce thought-provoking and entertaining docuseries. Keep up the great work. Regards, Michael. Well, thank you very much, Mike. I really appreciate uh, the email and the the nice thoughts. Um, I had a lot of fun with that Diane Lane episode. I still contend we need a third movie um, the, you know, the, the older, the older middle-aged rock star movie or something like that. I think that would be really, really fun. I haven't seen her in anything beyond the last season of house of cards lately anyway. So, you know, somebody write this script anyway, if anyone else has anything they're interested in sharing about this or any other episode, by the way, feel free to send it to me. Um, I, uh, I do have a couple of blog comments that I got recently, I uh, just, uh, from somebody named Chris and somebody named Vicky, where they talked about the white water summer post I wrote like 10 years ago. It's amazing. That post gets traction in a way where I guess it pops up when people, when people search Whitewater summer, because it's one of those movies you end up having to Google because it's like, do I remember this movie? So this guy named Chris said, This movie, Firstborn and Big Shots, were three films I vaguely remembered watching as a teen on a Saturday matinee movie channel. I remember enjoying these films and I completely forgot about them for years, even the names. It was fun finding these films 30 years later to bring back the 80s vibe. I think that's why the post keeps getting hits and comments because it's a movie that people remember and then they have to search for it and maybe it comes up. And then Vicky had said, it was Chad. Sorry, I had said Chris. Chad, Whitewater Summer is now on Tubi, so I've been watching it nonstop. The music is still in my amazing list. So yeah, that's pretty cool. So if you want to dig back into the archives and send me comments about some of the stuff I did way back when, feel free. I'm always up for a discussion about anything. And check out episode 70 of Required Reading if you want to hear me and Stella talk about books that feature hiking and journeys and things as a wrap up of our uh, little mini set of uh, episodes that we did. Now, next episode is going to come out at the end of October, beginning of November. So it's going to be a little bit of a a break between. Uh, The reason for that is because I'm going to be doing my annual coverage of the Baltimore Comic-Con, and it's also a special episode, a very special episode. No, I'm not going to be taking caffeine pills and freaking out, but I am excited. I'm so excited. I'm even a little scared because it's been 10 years 10 10 years since I started this podcast. So I'm gonna have a 10th anniversary show in addition to con coverage that'll be out very late October, early November. Come back for that, and as always, thank you very much for listening and take care. She
1: said the man in the suit was a spy.
0: Thanks for listening to Pop Culture Affidavit which is produced by me, Tom Panneries. All clips are copyright their respective copyright holders and no infringement is intended. This podcast is a part of the Two True Freaks internet radio network, which you can find at twotruefreaks.com. If you like the show, please leave a review on Apple Podcasts. It helps the show get noticed by other people. Feedback via email can be sent to popcultureaffidavit at gmail.com. For show notes and essays and other things random in the world of popular culture, visit popcultureaffidavit.com. You can also follow this show on Facebook at facebook.com slash popcultureaffidavit and on Twitter at popaff, that's P-O-P-A-F-F. Thanks for listening, and come back next time for more pop culture randomness.
1: The cars on the New Jersey Turnpike They've all all come to look for America All come to look for America All come to look for